Good morning. Hey, have any of you guys ever done something in the pursuit of happiness that re- later you regretted, realized it was pretty stupid? Any honest people in the room today? One of those situations for me that really sticks out in my mind happened when I was in high school. So my parents divorced. My dad lived in Michigan and my mom lived in North Carolina. I would spend the school year with my dad in Michigan and then I'd go to North Carolina during the summer. It seems like it should be reversed. The weather's really bad in the winter in Michigan and really hot in North Carolina. But I got it reversed at the cold, cold, horrible winters in Michigan, hot, hot, hot summers in North Carolina. Where my mom lived in North Carolina, I think might be the most boring place on earth. It is about 45 minutes south of Wilmington, North Carolina, which is a cool town, but where my mom lived was a place called Holden Beach, and there is nothing to do except hang out in trailer parks in Holden Beach, North Carolina. And so I decided I needed some entertainment for the summer, so I got a job at McDonald's. Any other McDonald's alumni in the house today? Yeah, we can have an alumni meeting afterwards. Some of the finest people in the United States at one point or another worked at McDonald's. And so I'm an extroverted guy. I worked at the cash register, and literally hundreds of people would come through every single day. And it's like no problem for me to strike up a conversation with a complete stranger, especially if that stranger is a good-looking girl about my age. Now, that's changed since I've gotten married, but back when I was a single high school student, I was looking to talk to any girl that I could that was remotely good-looking. And so one occasion, this young gal comes through the window, and we exchange money, and I, you know, she gives me her money. I start up a conversation. It, it seemed like a very, things went really well. And she goes on up to the next light, or to the next window. And, you know, you, you have to understand, like, hundreds of people are passing through. So it's easy to get people mixed up in the midst of the process. She goes up to the next window and asks my coworker for my phone number. So my coworker comes over the intercom. This is happening. Everybody's listening to it. This gal here, she wants your phone number. So I give my phone number. And she wants to hang out and go out on a date later. So she calls me later, and we set up a time to hang out and go out on a date. I didn't have a car at the time. She did. So romantically, she came and picked me up from my mom's trailer. And, <laughs> and so I'm sitting there waiting there for this girl. And, you know, in, in my mind, this is like, this is going to be a great moment. This girl is beautiful. And I'm feeling like Brad Pitt. She's Angelina Jolie. And I'm all happy at this moment. Like, this, this is going to make me so joyful and happy when I get to spend time with this girl. And I'm watching the car come down the road, and something doesn't feel right. She gets a little bit closer. She pulls up into my mom's driveway. She gets out of the car, and lo and behold, it's not the girl that I thought it would be. And let's just say she was a little bit less attractive than the girl that I thought I was going out on a date with. So for the next two and a half hours, we had a great conversation. She was, as guys often say, she just has such a beautiful heart, such a nice person. She's a really nice person. But we never went out on a date again after that. But, but you know, all of us have done some things that we thought would make us happy, that we thought would bring joy into our lives, that we thought would bring a little bit of excitement. And some of those stories are funny, and we can laugh about them, but others uh, of those stories leave us feeling broken and empty inside. Maybe it's a relationship that you pursued that you thought would bring happiness. You started dating that person, maybe even got married to them, and later on that hole in your heart just seems to grow and it's bigger than it was before. Maybe it's a a car that you bought or a house that you bought or money that you spent to go on vacation and you got back from the vacation and that that happiness that you thought would be in your life is non-existent. The hole, the brokenness just seems to continue to grow. 
And what we've been saying with this Happiness Is message series, there is a happiness facade in our world. It's this mentality or this image of happiness that we all pursue in all the wrong places. But what we've discovered is when we pursue happiness in all the wrong places, it leads to brokenness in our lives. It leads to habits, hurts, and hangups that, that cause us to miss God's very best for our lives. And, and what we established the first couple of weeks with the series is it's not the pursuit of happiness that's wrong. I think God made us as human beings to experience joy, that a part of his desire and will for our lives is that we would be filled with joy. But it's where we look for happiness and joy that matters. And we're approaching happiness and an understanding with this series that there is a path to happiness that Jesus and God outlines for us which leads to lasting joy and contentment. And we're shifting our perspective with this series. We're looking at what true happiness is. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at several key teachings of Jesus found in the book of Matthew. And if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. And we're going to look at one verse in particular from the book of Matthew chapter 5. It's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is teaching a very large group of people. And at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to outline what are known as the eight Beatitudes. It's just a really religious, churchy way of saying the eight statements of happiness that Jesus gives, the path that he gives to experience true and authentic joy in our lives. This sermon, though, it's important to understand, is the foundation of Jesus' teachings. It really is where Jesus outlines his kingdom and what it means to live according to his way and his principle. And these statements in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, I want you to hear them, and I'm going to read all of them as the original hearers would have understood them. In fact, it starts off in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now that word blessed literally just means happy. The hearers of Jesus' audience, they would have heard the word happy when Jesus said this in the original language. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Happy are those who are meek, for they will inherit the earth. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be filled. Happy are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Happy are those who are pure in heart, for they will see God. Happy are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And happy are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now let's just be real honest. Sometimes I read the Bible and it does not make sense to me at all. And I'm a pastor. And listen to so many of these phrases that Jesus uses to describe what a path to happiness, is, what it looks like to experience authentic happiness. How could it be that a person who mourns experiences joy and peace? How could it be somebody who is poor in spirit experiences happiness? Now here's what I want to say. The path that Jesus gives for us to life oftentimes is a great mystery. That when you look at the ways of the world and, and what the world teaches us will lead us to happiness. It seems on the surface that that's what will fill the hole. But there is a mystery that I'm discovering in my own journey and I don't understand how it all works together. But as I interact more and more, more with people who authentically follow the way and teachings of Jesus, they are some of the most joy-filled, happy people on the earth. And I'm not just talking about churchy, religious Christians 
I'm talking about people who have truly embraced at a heart, mind, life level the teachings of Jesus. They are some of the most joy-filled people. And I'm experiencing, even in my own life, the more I seek to follow in what Jesus has given to us in the scriptures, especially in the New Testament and his teachings, that's when the greatest level of joy comes into my life that supersedes circumstance. And in the third phrase Jesus gives us, he says something very, very significant, which is where we're going to camp today. Jesus says, blessed are those who are meek, for they will inherit the earth. And whenever I think of meekness, I don't know about you, but because of my cultural understanding, the word that automatically comes into my mind is weakness. That oftentimes we associate meekness with weakness. But I want to define on the front end, when the listener, underst- when the listener heard Jesus, what they would have understood that word meekness to mean. Meekness does not mean, let's start, start there, Meekness does not mean weakness. It does not mean a person who is, who is spineless, mild-mannered, or unable to stand up for themselves. And you ever notice like these movies with Jesus? He's like this feather-haired guy with, a, with, a, with like a uh, um, British accent. You know what I'm talking about? You know, Jesus like, blessed all the poor in spirit for the... Jesus didn't speak like an English dude. And it, a lot of stories in the Bible, Jesus wasn't mild-mannered, and one time he got ticked off at a bunch of religious people at the temple, and they were selling religious goods and using it for their own their own gain, and even a couple times, Jesus would go and he like flipped the tables at the temple out of frustration and anger. He was anything but mild-mannered, spineless, and docile, but here's what meekness actually means in the original language. Meekness means great power underneath control. Say it one more time. Great power under control. I think about it like this. My son came in, who's five years old right now. He always wants to wrestle when I walk through the door in the evenings. The first thing he says to me, I'll put my bag down and he goes, let's wrestle. And he'd get down like this. It's so funny to me that this little five-year-old kid, once he says it, will open up a can of trash talk like that goes on and on. He's like, you can't take me. I'm going to put you down on the ground. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to hurt you. You're going you're gonna to be in big trouble. You can't handle me. I'm like, something, you're, you're missing something here. I'm like, twice your size. My bicep is bigger than your head. That's a little of exaggeration, but you, what are you talking about? So this last week I was wrestling on the ground with Cademan and I'm trying to teach him how to control himself. For some reason, he thinks that wrestling is boxing. And so he'll start punching me and doing all these crazy things. So this week, I'm on the ground with him and he decides he wants to be Wolverine. So he takes his hands and literally digs his fingernails into my face, trying to pull the flesh off of my skull. Now, my wife said that at that moment, I screamed like a woman From how I remember the story, I screamed like Hulk, the superhero. (laughs) And this little boy has no control over his power. But in, in this example, I represent meekness. I could knock that kid into next week. I could tie him into a pretzel. I could show him who's the boss. But my power is under control. And the, the example that Jesus gives to us, when, when the listener would have heard the word meekness, the image would be of a great horse who's been broken, who is now underneath the control of a master. And so for so many of us, 
When we think of meekness, we think of someone who's weak, we think of someone who's spineless, we think of someone who's docile and mild-mannered, but Jesus is giving us something very different than that. He's giving us the image of great power that has been harnessed and brought underneath the control and the will of another who is greater, who is wiser, who is more understanding than the horse. And for many of us, we don't understand the opposite of meekness either. The opposite of meekness is not weakness. The opposite of meekness is stubbornness. It's that horse that is out of control. It's that horse that bucks against the authority of its master. And, and here's what my wife is telling me this in between services. She had a couple horses growing up. And she had this one horse that was stubborn and totally ill-willed. She got these two horses and her dad tied them up in a pasture. And one of the horses bucked against the authority of the rope around his, his ankle so bad that he tore his Achilles tendon and he was lame for the rest of his life. See, power that is not harnessed can become dangerous to both us and to others. And Jesus is going to help us understand in understanding happiness how a life that is powerful yet harnessed underneath the control of God is a life that experiences great joy and contentment. And here's how we're going to do it. We're going to look at Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. And if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn there. And we're going to walk through the story of a Roman centurion who interacts with Jesus and in my opinion is the best example in the scriptures of meekness aside from Jesus himself. And we see in this man a heart condition that is underneath control. It's great power under control. Watch what happens in verse number 1 of Luke chapter 7. Scripture says that when Jesus had finished saying all this and hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion servant whose master value, was value, whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. Now you have to understand, in the context, a Roman centurion would not have been seen with favor to the average Israelite. Because Roman was, the Romans were oppressing all of the Israelites. And here is this Roman centurion who's going to ask for a favor of one who's claiming to be the Messiah of the nation of Israel. The scripture says he was sick and about to die. And the centurion had heard of Jesus, so he sent some of his el- the elders of the Jews to him. Now, here's what's kind of iron- ir- ironic about the story. The Roman centurion had never even been around Jesus. He'd never spoken to him. He'd never seen Jesus heal. But the story just says that he had heard of the teachings of Jesus. He had heard of the healings of Jesus. And now he sends some of the elders of the nation of Israel to go and to interact with Jesus. And then the scripture says, when they came to him, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. See, he's different than the average Roman centurion. Somehow he was able to win the favor of the Israelites, the elders of the town, and they were so willing to go to Jesus and ask for a favor because he was different. The story continues. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself for I do not deserve to have you come underneath my roof. Now, if you back up a little bit and you start off in the story, here's a Roman centurion. He sends the elders to Jesus, and then he doesn't even want Jesus to come underneath the roof of his house. At face value, that would seem like arrogance to me. Yet when you begin to look into the heart of this man, watch what he says. 
I did not even consider myself to come and worthy to come to you. Uh, Scooting back a little bit. Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come underneath my roof. That's why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But you just say the word, and my servant will be, be healed. For I myself am a man who's under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, and he comes. And then I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I've never seen such great faith even in Israel. And then the man who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. This is a very mysterious story that Jesus would look at this man, this Roman centurion, and say, I've never even seen faith like this, even in people who consider themselves to be followers of God. This guy that's a Roman, this guy who's not even a follower of God, is, is exemplifying a greater faith than anybody Jesus has ever interacted with. What was it about this man that Jesus saw which was different from every other human being that he had interacted with? It was his faith being combined with the spirit of meekness. And I think that this story so clearly shows and exemplifies for us in the 21st century what it means to live a life of meekness. And I want you to hear four confessions of what this man says to Jesus in the passage, which clue us into why Jesus would say, I've never seen faith like this before. Watch what he says first. He says, Lord, don't trouble yourself for I don't deserve to have you come underneath my roof. Now, why would this man say to Jesus, Lord, Master, Commander, I don't deserve to have you come to me? He's not, he's not a Jewish person. He's a Roman soldier. He should have been in authority over Jesus because he was a part of the kingdom that was ruling the nation of Israel. Yet there is this phrase of great respect and honor for this Roman soldier to Jesus before ever interacting with him and meeting him. This is the beginning and the foundation of a heart of meekness. It's this. It's the acknowledgement that you know best. God, you know what's best for my life. You see beyond what I can see. The phrase Lord that the Roman centurion used literally meant master. It's an assertion that you know what's best. You think about it like a horse. As I previously mentioned, that whenever a horse is being tamed, You know, that natural tendency of the horse is to buck the authority that is trying to harness the strength and the power. It's the same struggle that we as human beings go through, especially men, right? We don't want anybody else to be in control of the destination of our lives, and we buck against authority. But the beginning of a horse being tamed and their power being brought underneath control is the acknowledgement that there is a master, a trainer, another who knows best. And you know, when you think about war and you think about a horse that goes into battle, that, that the soldier riding on the back of the horse can see danger and can steer a horse clear of danger, can lead a horse victoriously into battle, but the horse that bucks against the authority runs straight into danger, misses the opportunity, and is no longer victorious. In a life of meekness, There is great power that comes through surrender and the acknowledgement that there is a God who knows what's best. I mean, let's just step back for a second. Let's take the collective wisdom of the 200, 250 people that are in the room today. In all of our experiences and all the years, we have some mature people in the room today. 
and we have some others of us who are in our 20s and 30s and still trying to figure life out. Let's say we collectively add together our knowledge and our wisdom. If you took all the information, all the knowledge, all the wisdom in the room, and you added it together, it would look like it would pale in comparison to the great wisdom, knowledge, and strength of the mighty God of the universe. That this God who, who is the one that wants to be the authority in our lives sees for eternity into the past and sees for eternity into the future, and he has the capacity and the ability, not just with his power, but with his wisdom and his knowledge to lead you and I in our current situation and circumstance with wisdom and insight that we, can, we can't even comprehend because our perspective is so limited like a horse with blinders on that can't see beyond what is immediately in front of us. Meekness is a heart condition that says there is a God who knows best. That's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the apostle Paul says, we walk by faith and not by sight. That the life of a follower of Christ is day-to-day walking by faith with the knowledge and the wisdom of a mighty God who's eternal in his perspective, leading the daily steps and the daily decisions. Meekness begins with the acknowledgement and the assertion that God knows what's best for our life. You know what's best. But it doesn't stop there. Watch what else this Roman centurion says to Jesus. Second phrase he says to him is this. That's why I didn't consider myself worthy to come to you, but Jesus, you just say the word and my servant will be healed. Now we have to think about it in the context. Most of the other healings of Jesus, how did they happen? Jesus would be going through a town. He'd teach a large group of people. There would be somebody who was blind. They would come up to Jesus and they'd cry out, Jesus, will you just touch my eyes and heal me? There was another woman who had been bleeding for years and she reaches up and grabs the back of his, his garment and she's healed through touch. And this Roman soldier says to Jesus, you don't even have to come to my roof. You don't have to lay hands on this guy. You just say the word. You just say the word and my servant will be healed. Jesus, you are able to deal with my current reality. You are able to walk through my brokenness and find, give hope and and give healing and give life to my current struggle, my current situation. And the second assertion or confession of meekness is this. It's God, you're able. You're able to handle what I can give to you. There's a scripture in 2 Timothy, I believe, that says that God is able to take care of and to guard that which is entrusted to him for that day. So walk through your life today with me, just for a moment. All the situations and circumstances that you're currently going through. I think about what we're going through as a church, trying to get into a building. And it's been an ongoing journey. I mean, it's taken us like a year and a half, and we continue to take steps by faith, and we've been doing everything that we can to cut back budget and to try to get into the building as quick as possible, and we're like, you know, maybe two to three months out. We had a, a meeting this last week and we're sitting around as a staff and we called it like the dream cut meeting, you know, where you got to like, okay, this piece of equipment, we don't get that. Okay, we're going to this color carpet instead of that color carpet. We're, go- we're getting this paint instead of that paint. We're doing, you know, and it's just like, okay, let's keep moving back and moving back. And in the middle of it, I'm like, I'm getting discouraged and frustrated. And then later on after the meeting, you know, it never happens right in the moment for us. But later going back, just thinking, man, God has been so faithful to take care of our church from the beginning of the moment when he put the vision in my heart to this current reality. He's a God who's able to handle this, the situation that I'm currently walking through. When you're walking through a divorce and you feel great brokenness and you, you feel lonely, 
God is able to enter into your brokenness and give hope and strength. For those of you who are single in the room, and you feel that emptiness in your heart, and you've been looking for that right spouse, God is able in this moment to enter into your loneliness and become your strength, to become your companion, and to become your guide. For, for those of you who are struggling financially in the room, maybe you got the news this week that you're getting a pay cut or you lost a job and you're being laid off. God is able to provide for you in this moment. He's been faithful for eternity past. He will be faithful for eternity into the future. He knows what's best, but he's also able. He, he's not neutered by our current circumstances in our struggle. And the horse that has great power underneath control gives us assertion that in this moment, as I acknowledge the power and the ability of God, every area of my life that I surrender to him, check this out, his power is infused into my life, into my relationships, into my finances, into my lack of patience, my lack of love, my lack of kindness, that this, this power of an almighty God, it's, it's not that I'm like this strong horse, it's that the master and commander that's on my back calling the shots is the one that created the universe in seven days with, with spoken word, called forth everything that we can lay our eyes on, that he can be the one who guides your daily decisions and gives you the power and the strength that you need to overcome addictions, to find healing out of your brokenness. And I don't know about you, but I think that this is, this is pretty good news. God is with us. He is for us. And those who live meek lives acknowledge from the bottom of their heart, God, not only do you know what's best, but you're able. You speak the word. You speak the word, this broken marriage will be healed. You speak the word, my lonely heart will be mended. You speak the word, my financial situation, maybe it might not change circumstantially, but you'll provide for all of my needs and you will carry through my trial. You are able to deal with what I submit and I surrender to you in my life. You know best, you're able, and then watch. Number three, listen to what he says. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one go, he goes, I say jump, he says how high, I say come, he comes, and then I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Do you know what he's saying? He says, I'm powerful, I have authority. I can tell this soldier to go, I tell that one to come, but not only am I powerful and I have authority, but I'm one who stands underneath another authority, and that authority is the king of Rome, and when he tells me to do something, I do it, and all of my power is not because of my strength, my biceps, the size of my legs, or the strength of my horse, it's because I stand united with a Roman army, the greatest, most powerful army in the world. I'm under authority, and I have those underneath me who are in authority. But then he says to Jesus this phrase. He says, you just say the word, and it happens. And he acknowledges that Jesus is not just in authority in a physical sense, that Jesus is in authority in a spiritual sense, that he is the creator of the universe, that he has the power with a spoken word to heal this man's servant. He is one who is great in authority. And here's what he's saying to Jesus. You're in charge. You are in charge of this situation. You're in charge of my life. You're in charge of my situation. Not only do you know what's best, not only are you able, but you're in charge. 
And for so many of us, we're like that, we're like that horse that wants to just keep bucking against authority and want to keep doing life our own way. And we're like my wife's horse when she was a little girl. We're breaking our Achilles tendon. We're, we're destroying our life because of our own stubbornness. Listen, write this down. Power comes through surrender and atrophy comes through stubbornness. Say it one more time. Power comes through surrender. Atrophy comes through stubbornness. You know what atrophy is? It's when a muscle gets weaker over the course of time. Every area of my life that is not submitted to God over the course of time becomes weak. Every area that is submitted to Christ in my life over the course of time becomes strong. And this this Roman soldier acknowledges before Jesus that he's in charge. I'm submitting to your authority. You know what's best. You're able. And number three, you're in charge. What area of your life are you currently trying to run on your own authority? What area of your life today are you rebelling against God's authority? Maybe there's that secret sin in your life that you just don't want to give up. You enjoy the pleasure of it, the fun of it in the moment, but when you look back, there's great brokenness. There's great emptiness. And a part of healing a part of the life that God wants us to experience. And a great component of joy and contentment is the submission of every area of my life underneath the control of God. It's the submission of my relationships and the way I interact with people. It's the submission of how I handle finances. It's the submission of the way that I treat my wife and my kids. For singles, it's the submission of the way that I pursue relationships with the opposite sex. It's the submission of every component of my life. And when I pursue a path, the happiness facade, or I pursue life in a way that Jesus doesn't outline, that area of my life over the course of time just becomes more and more weak. But if I will pursue it as Jesus teaches, if I'll put the needs and the goals and interests of my wife and my kids above my goals and interests, over the course of my, t- over the course of my life, strength goes. I become a better, grows. I become a better husband, a better, a better father for my kids as I submit and surrender to the power of God, which can flow through every component in every area of my life. And then here's the last thing I want you to hear. He says this. He says, Going back to verse number six and seven. He's not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to him saying, Lord, don't trouble yourself for I don't deserve to have you come underneath my roof. That's why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But, Jesus, but you just say the word and my servant will be healed. See that? Do you see that this man says, don't trouble yourself. You don't even have to come to my house. I'm low maintenance. You just speak the word and it will be done. And the last confession and assertion of a life of meekness is you just say the word, Jesus. You just tell me where to go. You say go left, I go left. You say go right, I go right. You say charge into battle, I charge into battle. You say halt, I halt. You just say the word. And look at this servant. He is low maintenance and high yield. And you ever noticed how a lot of Christians and a lot of Christ followers extremely high maintenance and very low yield. And I, I, I love that we have so many people at our church that are like this Roman centurion, that are centurion, that are like, they're low maintenance and they are high yield, submitted to Christ to say, you just say the word. I, I don't need a lot of accolades. I don't need somebody to throw me up on stage and say good job and pat me on the back. I am marching to the orders of the king of the universe, low maintenance and high yield. 
Now, my wife informed me this week that I'm high maintenance and high yield. I'm working on that. But I think that the Roman centurion is such an incredible example for us. First, he says, you know what's best. Second, he says, you are able. Third, he says, you're in charge. And fourth, he says, you know what's best. Now, here's what I want to do as I, I draw to a close. This is just more than an example of how we're supposed to live our lives. This is a great spiritual truth that flows all the way back to the heart of God. That the greatest example of meekness is not this Roman centurion, it's Jesus himself. And that life of Jesus is the greatest example for humanity of power under control that we could ever possibly imagine. And I love this, this passage in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, and I want you just to listen to what it says. It says, your attitude should be that of Christ Jesus, who being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. See, Jesus, for eternity in the past, seated on a throne in heaven with all the privileges of God, and the scripture says that he emptied himself for a season of all these privileges to come and to live among us, living with the appearance of a man, scripture says he humbled himself and became obedient, obedient to death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Just as the Roman centurion said, that Jesus Christ is Lord. There will be a day where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father that his example of meekness ultimately led him to a cross. And in Matthew chapter 26, at Jesus' moment of greatest struggle, he's on his knees before his father in the Garden of Gethsemane, facing the brutal cross where his hands will be nailed and his feet will be punctured with a crown of thorns on his head being mocked by Roman soldiers. Jesus would say to his father, if there's any way if there's any way that I could save the world other than going to a cross, would you please show me? Would you give me a different path? And then he finishes his prayer with this statement. He says, but not my will, yours, your will be done. Not my will, your will be done. And Jesus in this moment could have totally avoided the cross, but in meekness lays down his power, places it under the control of the Father, and ultimately becomes the path for all of humanity to be bridged back to God. That every single one of us, we try on our own. Every world religion is all about what I can do to fix the brokenness in my life. But this message, the message of Jesus, is not about what we can do to get back to God. It's about what God has done in coming to us. That God would come, giving up his divine privileges for a season of time, to restore us back to God. And you know what part of the beauty, what we said, the happiness facade, leads us to brokenness, to hurts, habits, and hangups. Part of what Jesus does when he enters into our lives, he doesn't come and just fix all the circumstances to make our lives easy. He enters into our brokenness. He enters into our pain. And he gives us a family called the church that can come alongside of us and love us through our difficulty. And the message of Christ is not, it's not get your junk together. 
It's come with your junk and find one who loves you and embraces you, gives you the strength to live the life that he's asking you to live. And some of you are trying so hard to make yourself good enough. I'm telling you from my own experience, you can't do it. You'll never be able to measure up. You try, 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 try. But religion is not the solution. Not even the religion of Christianity is not the solution. The answer is a relationship with the God of the universe and to begin to allow him to be in charge of our lives, to make the assertion that he's able, to understand that he is the one who created us and formed us so that we would know him and have relationship with him. Some of us are bucking against this authority, trying to do life on our own strength. We're crashing around in the, in, in the pen and we're finding all kinds of damage and brokenness as a result. And what Jesus is saying with arms open wide to you and I today is to come. Come to me in your brokenness. Come to me in your pain. Come to me in your sorrow. Come to me in your doubts and you will find one who is merciful. And I love how Jesus finishes this passage or this, this one particular verse. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Every good thing that God wants to do in your life including a relationship between you and him starts with meekness. It starts with this attitude that approaches God and places him in charge of our lives. And in doing so, his strength, his power, his spirit, his hope, his peace is flooded into our souls to give us, to give us what we need to live the life that he's asking us to live. I invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads with me for just a moment. Search your heart in this moment. It's easy to hear a message like this and intellectually agree, but not at the deepest level of our heart. Meekness is giving God control of your life, saying you know best, you're able. In this moment, just confess to God, what is it that you've been trying to do on your own strength? Where, where have you been stubborn towards God? Where have you been bucking his authority? And to begin to in a fresh way, say, God, I'm inviting you to be in charge. I'm handing you the reins today of my life. Others of you, maybe this is the day for the very first time that you would give God control of your life. Some of you think that you've had a relationship with God, but it's only been in a religious sense. It's never been in this assertion of the core of who you are to say to your creator, God, I want to know you and I want to be in relationship with you. Today can be that day. All across the room, everyone underneath my voice, today can be the beginning of a new life in Christ. Today can be the moment where your journey with him begins as in your heart, you confess to him your need. So you might pray something that goes like this and it's not a prayer that begins a relationship with God, it's a heart condition, but say, God, you know what's best. You know what's best for my life. I acknowledge that. You're able to take care of what I would hand to you. And in this moment, I'm placing you in charge of my life. Jesus, I believe that you died on a cross, that you were crucified, and that you resurrected from the dead. Thank you for the life that you give. Please give me forgiveness in my heart. Please help me live in accordance with your way and your truth. And with every eye closed and every head still, uh, still bowed, others of you, I want to pray a prayer over you that today would be the day that you would surrender an area of your life that you currently have been holding back from God. 
Jesus, thank you so much today that you're filled with mercy and compassion for us, this broken world. Thank you that you give us the strength to live for you. Pray for every person here today that we would submit our lives to you in a fresh way. I pray, God, that those who are struggling financially, those who are struggling in relationships, those who are struggling in marriage, parenting, grandparenting, all of these areas would be brought underneath your authority. And in front of our whole church today, I just tell you that you are the authority of this place, that you're the one who's in charge. We want to march to the beat of your drum. We want to follow in your teaching and in your ways. We submit to you. You're the CEO. You're the master and commander. You know what's best. You see beyond what we can see. And it is my great joy today, Jesus. After all you've done for me, after the price that you paid, your, your resurrection from the dead and the, and the love and mercy that you offer. It is my joy to submit to you today. And we all collectively say to you, you are God. You know what's best. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.